For one last time, let's open up our Bibles to James chapter 5. At least in a consecutive series, James chapter 5. You guys will have to bear with me tonight. Uh, I'm a little airy, more than usual, we could say. Unlike this football, yes. No, I'm a little uh, spacey. Uh, the sickness has not left our house. Thankfully, we figured out what's going on with Ryder, but he caused him temporary uh, deafness, but he's all better now. James chapter 5. Everybody got your study sheet? Follow along with me in your review. As we look back at the last, actually technically 12 weeks, this is week 12, after our introduction to the series, we began chapter 1, technically week 2, looking at the marks of a maturing disciple. And we saw with the first 20 verses of chapter 1 that suffering marks a maturing disciple. We went back and we saw that was the entire intent of James's letter, to write to those who were suffering as a result of the persecution of their faith. You guys, Some of you guys might remember how I uh, inadvertently, well, no, it wasn't inadvertently, it was definitely intentionally, it poisoned some of you by putting uh, liquid ionized zinc into your lemonade. What? He's feeling fine. He took it like a champ. He's good. And it was a reminder for us that even though it may not taste good, it may taste a little bit bitter, when we're going through sufferings and trials in life, it's a reminder that it's something that we actually need. It makes us more like Christ. Next, we looked at the end of chapter 1 and saw that scripture saturation marks a maturing disciple. For those of you guys who remember, I had that illustration of the water, and then we just kept adding salt after salt after salt to it. And eventually, that solution became so saturated that the water molecules literally could not consume any more of the salt. And that's what it should be like with our, I guess, eating and consuming and being much with the Word of God, where it just starts to overflow out of us into the rest of our lives. Next, we saw how sincerity marks a maturing disciple and follow that up with service. That was the first controversial passage we looked at in James chapter 2 about faith without works being dead. And we talked about how the entire theme of James is not about how to get saved. It's the idea that if you are genuinely saved, it should work itself out into your life. And we covered that ad nauseum. Next, we saw in the chapter 3 that sound speech marks a maturing disciple. If you're going to be someone who God is going to use, you better use your tongue aright. And not to bring down, not to slander, not to gossip, not to backbite. Holy smokes, his Proverbs loaded with stuff like that. And of course, none of that ever happens to us. Wink, wink. Chapter 4 saw us looking at submission and how submission to God marks a maturing disciple. We looked at how the greatest character trait that anybody can possess is found right there in chapter 4. And honestly, I know I looked at the key verses at the very beginning or found in chapter 1, but man, to the point that I had to go back to chapter 4 and look at just those verses about humbling yourself in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. Humility is the greatest character trait that any single person can ever possess, more than anything. It's the exact opposite of pride. Submission to God. And when you resist the devil and submit yourselves under the mighty hand of God, temptation will flee from you. It's that simple. And then we dove into part one of our four-part series in a chapter five, self-sacrifice. 
self-sacrifice marks a maturing disciple. Because again, those sufferings and those trials aren't going to go away. And even in the midst of that trial, you need to be steadfast in your faith because steadfastness marks a maturing disciple. And last week we looked at how supplication, a prayer life, if you're not praying, you're playing. The church has so many organizers, but few agonizers. There was an excerpt from a book that I wanted to read. Actually, I think I've brought it in here twice on two times I've covered prayer, and I've still ran out of time to read it. But those are quotes that are from that book, and it's just an amazing book. For those of you guys who are looking for reading material, uh, get a book called Why Revival Tarries by Leonard Ravenhill. Fascinating book on prayer. I mean, chapter two. You know, like you start highlighting like, oh, that's a good phrase. Oh, that's a good phrase. And before you know it, oh, I highlighted the entire chapter. That's chapter two of that book where he just hammers it out as far as prayer. Supplication marks a maturing disciple. And tonight... We're going to conclude our study by looking at soul winning. Soul winning marks a maturing disciple. Look with me in verse 19. This is how he ends this powerhouse, this thunderous book that bears his name. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his ways the heir of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, I do want to thank you for this thunderous book written by a son of thunder. James was uh, known as James the Lesser. He was the of the three disciples between Peter and John. He was the one that was least talked about, but man, does this book that bears his name pack a punch. I know just from the testimony of several people in here of how this has hit them at certain parts throughout the course of the last 12 weeks, and I pray that tonight's no different. Lord, uh, this message is very simply straightforward, a gospel message, but it's got a little couple of doctrinal nuggets in here that maybe we've never considered before. So I want to ask and pray. If there's someone in here tonight who has never fully surrendered and trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, may tonight be the night that they do it. And for those of us who are saved and we know it, may you please give us a vision. Give us a glimpse into eternity. Give us a glimpse into the not-so-pleasant side of eternity. Please uh, get me out of the way. Speak through me. Uh, Lord, I'm weak in the flesh, but as we saw last week, that's when you're going to be strong. So I pray you clear my mind, be with my tongue, and that you would speak this lesson uh, for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. So on your outline here, uh, outline, on your outline here, study sheet outline, winning souls for Christ, it's the conclusion of the whole matter. That's stripped straight from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. And winning souls for Christ, man, that is not only the conclusion of this letter, it is the conclusion of the entire purpose of what we are here for. I heard it said this way, if, if God was only interested in saving your soul, and that was like your soul, not talking about others. If God was only interested in saving your soul and nothing more, then he would have taken you straight up to heaven at the moment you received Christ. Because honestly, it's completely fruitless and pointless for him to keep us here if there wasn't a deeper mission. 
And obviously we know that the mission is to reach out to others whose soul needs converted, who, who others need soul, needs, soul needs saved and their sins covered. So the first point on your outline here, I want us to look at something very similar. He says there, right there in verse uh, 20, that he which converteth the sinner from the air of his way shall save a soul from death. Tonight we're going to be talking a lot about the soul. And the first bullet point on your outline, we see that man is a living soul, and the soul that sins shall die. Man's a three-part being. Uh, again, review for a lot of us here, but just follow along with me to see where we're going with this. Genesis 2, 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. What's unique about this verse here? Specifically by the highlighted parts. I, I didn't ask for you just to say what's up there, Andy. What's significant about it? It's okay. You're on break from JBI. Don't worry about it. Yeah, say it. Thank you. Yeah, it's also right there in the title. That's right. Good go. Good job, guys. Awesome. Yeah. This right here shows that man was a three-part being. You have the dust of the ground, his body, the physical part. You have the breath of life that God breathed into him. That's his spirit. And as a result, man became a living soul. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says something very, very similar, that God's entire purpose for all of our lives as Christians is to sanctify us wholly. And the holy, he says, there isn't H-O-L-Y, it's W-H-O-L-L-Y, as in completely. And he lets us know in that verse that our entire body, our entire soul, and our entire spirit needs to be blameless under the coming of Jesus Christ. Again, letting us know that we are a three-part being. Man is a living soul. But, according to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, and also verse 20 later, he lets us know that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. This is very, very interesting phraseology. Very interesting the way that he words things by letting us know that when we sin, we are going to die. And we know the rest of the story. God tells man specifically, hey, of every tree... In the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that ye eat thereof thou shalt surely die. And what ended up dying when he did that? Spirit. It was his spirit. Because they didn't croak right away and fall right into the ground, so their body was fine. And also they had a personality, they were still able to speak, so their soul was fine. No, no, no. It was that connection. It was that breath of life that connected them with God. That's what took its last breath. That's what got swiped away. That's where they lost the image of God. But Ezekiel 18 is very, very interesting when it says the soul that sins shall die. How does that work out? Well, you see, what's interesting here is that on your outline, the second or the sub bullet point there, due to Adam and Eve's sin, we see that the body and soul ultimately became fused together. What do I mean by that? Turn over to Numbers chapter 19. And you don't need to hold your place in the book of James. Numbers chapter 19. We'll see something very, very fascinating here. Can I get a reader for verse 13? Anderson, go ahead. 
Whosoever toucheth, toucheth the, the dead body of any man that is dead, and purifieth not himself, defileth the tabernacle of the Lord. And that soul shall be cut off from Israel, because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is yet upon him. Oh, wait a second. He just said if anybody touches a dead body, which you have to do that with your physical body, right? The dust of the ground, the dust of you, the physical part, your body. He says that anybody touches a dead body, the soul of that man shall be cut off. He's letting you know that what happens as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, whenever someone sins in their body, it has detrimental consequences to their soul as well. Because the body and the soul are now fused together. Not only that, but flip over to your left to Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus chapter 7. Can I get a reader for verse 27? Kendall, go ahead. How on earth can a soul eat blood? Has to happen through the physical body. You know the coolest thing I, I thought of to, to illustrate this, and I can't take credit for it. I was actually, uh, uh, those of you guys who know, man, those of you who would know, is probably your sixth or seventh grade year of summer camp. Uh, but Pastor Mike Blake over at Monmouth, Illinois, or, or Monmouth, Maple City Baptist Church in Monmouth, Illinois, um, he's a, been a dear friend of mine for the longest time. And I remember, I think it was Christmas of 2016, his brother died. Uh, he OD'd. And uh, Mike had just opportunity after opportunity, because his brother lived here in Akron. Uh, Mike had opportunity after opportunity to witness to him. And he believes he didn't make a profession of, his, of faith, but Mike got a chance to do the funeral here in Akron. And I remember, <laughs> if you've ever been to one of Mike Blake's uh, messages at summer camp, then you've also been to a funeral too, because there's no difference. He preaches the exact same way at a funeral as he does at summer camp. That's something I always love about and admire about the guy. But he brought a deflated football. And to a lot of his brothers, lost druggy friends, and maybe some other family members too, Mike is just hammering the gospel at this funeral. He says, you know what, man, we often explain the Trinity you know, God is three in one. We often use like an egg. You know, you have uh, one egg, but in that one egg, you have the shell, you have the yolk, and you have the whites. Three, yet one. Man is kind of like a football. You know why? Why this is one of the best pictures of show man is three in one? What is this? Don't say football, otherwise you're getting hit. What's the outer? Pigskin. You know what's inside? <laughs> you know what's inside of this? There's a bladder that is the exact same shape and size as the outer pigskin. That represents the soul. And what's funny is this is deflated, but you know what's funny? I, I don't feel anything. It's like the soul, the bladder, is completely fused with the pigskin. And he goes all man's life because he lost this breath of life that God breathed into his nostrils. All of man's life is just constantly going, <sighs> I can't do that again, otherwise I'm going to blow my brains out. It's just trying to inflate and fill it back up with air, something that you can't do. That's what man is like. 
But the point I wanted you guys to see from this is that the outer shell looks exactly the same way on the inside if you were to cut this thing open. The bladder looks exactly like the outside, just like the sole is fused and looks exactly like the body. That's key. We're coming back to that. And as a result of that, the second point, we cannot cover our own sins to save our soul. That was the requirement of James chapter 5. A soul needs saved from the multitude of his sins. His sins need a covering because of everything that has happened here. Man, our sins are just wide out in the open. And we just continue to add up in our life all of this sinfulness. And who are we going to do? What are we going to do to cover it? Proverbs 28, 13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. In other words, no amount of church going, no amount of works, no amount of baptizing, no amount of taking communion every single Sunday can possibly cover up your sins. You're not going to prosper from it. No matter how hard you try to blow inside this, to try to inflate it and blow it up, it's not going to happen. It's flat. It's dead. You try to save yourself, you try to cover your sins, you are not going to prosper. And not only that, Genesis 3-7. What did Adam and Eve do? They tried to take matter in their own hands. They tried to cover their sins. And the eyes of them both were opened after they partook of the fruit. And they knew that they were naked. And look what they did. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves... Man, that is what people are all about today. Making themselves, being their own self-made man, making a name for yourself. They sewed fig leaves together. Why? To cover their sin with the works of their own hands. Turn over to Mark chapter 11. I never saw this before, and this is quite alarming when you think about it. Maybe this is you. Maybe all your life going to church, getting the answers right to all the Bible stories, <coughs> being a good person as best as you can, praying, reading your Bible. Maybe it's all been just an attempt to try to inflate something that you can't possibly inflate, to cover something that you can't possibly cover. Here's what... Christ did, I thought was very, very fascinating as it pertains to these fig leaves. Look with me in verse 13. Uh, verse 12 for context. On the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing a what? Yeah, where they got the fig leaves from, Adam and Eve. Seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but what? For the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, don't miss this. No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. You know what Christ is doing right here publicly? He's letting people know, hey, this, this act of self-righteousness, no more. It's done. Because now Jesus is on the scene. Jesus is now on the scene and he is putting an end to the works of man. He's putting an end to to the sowing of fig leaves, to man's feeble attempts to try to cover and hide his own sins. He says, no more. It's done. But check out what happens down in verse 20. 
And in the morning, as they passed by, they, the disciples, saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Verse 21, And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou, what? Is withered away. You know what's interesting about that verse right here? This is the only time in the Gospels where you will see Jesus Christ curse something. And it's this fig tree. Nowhere else in the Gospels do you see Jesus Christ Himself cursing anything else. Putting a curse on anything. Except for this fig tree. And everything this fig tree represents. It's quite fascinating. Not to mention the fact, well, I'm jumping ahead. We can't cover our sins to save our own soul because every single time you try to, not only will you not prosper, you will fall short. Is this you? Is this someone that you know? Someone you go to school with that you really wish was here tonight? What are you going to do? James 5 ends talking about someone who loves somebody so much that he goes to seek and to save that soul which is lost. To cover the multitude of sins for him. To convert him so that he can save him from his sins. That's how James ends this entire book. You see, next point. One day, everyone whose sins are not covered will lose their own soul. You're in Mark right now. Turn back to chapter 8. Basic stuff, right? Oh, is it? How does someone lose their own soul? You ever think about that? Look at verse 36 of Mark 8. Somebody read it for me. Great verse we use in witnessing, or at least it should be. Especially if you have friends that are all about seeking a name for themselves, all caring about their reputation, caring about trying to be top dog on baseball or football or whatever. And that's all they care about. So, of course, they have no time for Christ. They have no time for the Word of God. They have no time to sit down and meet with you as you share Christ with them. What does it matter if they gain the whole world? And especially as you guys get older... And then you go off to college and you see people where college is everything. Their entire life has been building up to this point where now they go to college to make a name for themselves so they can go and have a career, have a reputation. They can start a family as a result of this and maybe start their own business. Hey, nothing wrong with that, but people who are so driven about it where they just want to gain the entire world. What's it going to profit for them on Judgment Day? But he says, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but souls are one of the only two things that are going to live on forever, right? Let's go. I'm feeling it too. But let's go. Everyone wake up. Souls are one of the only two things that are going to last forever, right? Yes. Yeah. So how can someone lose his own soul? If it's going to live forever, whether in heaven or hell, how can someone lose it? 
Well, technically speaking, you would lose your body. You die, you lose your body, but your soul's going to live on forever, either in heaven or in hell. Anybody ever think of that? I'm going to start tying knots together here in a little bit. Matthew 10, 28 says something very, very interesting. Maybe this will help fill in some blanks for you. He says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him which is able both to destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, who is that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we should fear. And He does have that power. To destroy both the body and kill the soul. That's interesting. Well, you know what's interesting here? We see something in the very next passage I have on your outline here. Luke 16, very, something very similar, very uh, profound happens. Everyone thinks it's a parable. But it's not. Luke 16, you have a story of a rich man... And a beggar named, anybody remember? Lazarus. And they go to what is called the Old Testament equivalent of heaven, and it's called Abraham's bosom, and it's in the center of the earth. And the way that it worked out is in the Old Testament, you had Abraham's bosom or heaven over here, and you had this great gulf or gap in between Abraham's bosom and hell in the center of the earth. And it's not a parable because anytime Christ speaks in a parable, he never uses real names. He never uses real people. And he makes it very, very clear it's a parable. Not in Luke 16. So you have this happen. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels in Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was what? So what was buried? His body. Now we know, just because of common sense, that the beggar who died, his body was also buried, but yet something was carried by the angels in Abraham's bosom. Obviously, it's the... Yeah, but follow with me. And in hell, and, and who's in hell, by the way? The rich man, but what about the rich man? His soul. And in hell, he lift up his what? You have eyes as a soul. Being in torments, you have feelings as a soul. And seeth Abraham afar off. You have memory and discernment as a soul. Even after you die. And Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Your soul has a mouth. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue you have a tongue as a soul for i am tormented in this flame but abraham said which if abraham's speaking back to him that must also mean that you have ears as a soul son remember thou then lifetime receivest good things and likewise lazarus evil things but now he is comforted and thou art tormented you see people like jehovah's witnesses or seventh-day adventists I think Mormons are another one who like to tell this fairy tale that after you die, the soul that goes to hell because they didn't believe in the right God or the right religion, the soul that goes to hell is annihilated, they called, 
where it's called soul sleep, where if you go to hell, boom, your soul is just completely annihilated and the existence and the memory of you, it's almost as though you were never here. Not according to Luke 16. Be careful though, because especially if you're sitting in a coffee shop trying to do your college homework and great-grandpa great and great-grandpa Bill and, Arth- and Martha from you know, the local Jehovah's Witness uh, Kingdom Hall sit down and try to talk with you about being a Jehovah's Witness and you show them this verse, they're going to try to tell you that it's a parable. So just make sure that you're ready because it's kind of happened before. No, see, why do I show you all this? As a reminder, your soul has a body that is in the exact same shape and size as your physical body as your sub point your soul has a body that is an exact replica of your physical body much like a football you're in chapter 8 look over at chapter 9 second bullet point the Bible vividly describes what happens to the soul in what is called the second death Chapter 9, verse 44. Uh, Verse 42 for context sake. Jesus speaking. This is Jesus speaking. You know, the lamb, sweet baby Jesus. Wish Andy was in here right now. Sweet 10-pound, 8-ounce, little baby Jesus. The lamb. This is him speaking. You know... When people tell us to read the New Testament because it's lighter than the Old Testament, here's Jesus. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, uh, sorry, I jumped before verse verse 42, and whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me and is better for him than a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. In other words, you better take teaching in the kids' ministry very seriously. Verse 43, if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. Huh. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands going into where? Yeah, because your soul has hands. Into the fire that never shall be quenched. Verse 44. Where there, what? Dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into where? Yeah, because your soul also has two feet. Into the fire that never shall be quenched. Verse 46. Where there what? Worm Worm dieth not. And the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Verse 48. Where there what? Dieth not. And the fire is not quenched. show you guys something here and then I'll give commentary. Isaiah 66, which by the way, pause, Isaiah 66. You know what's really cool about Isaiah? And again, if somebody's looking for another place they can read in their devotions, 66 books, but hey, it's a new place and Isaiah's pretty cool, actually. You know what's significant about that? Isaiah 66. There's only 66 chapters in the book. What do you think is significant about that number? You're off by like 600. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, they probably didn't have anything significant to say. It's over on this side, anyways. How many books of the Bible are there? 66. It's been said. Oh, did you? Okay, all right. <laughs> you guys had your chance, and then he fumbled it with 66, so she ran it into the end zone. Anyways, they say that if you read that book, every single chapter of Isaiah coincides with the correspondent book that it represents. So in other words, you read chapter 1, you might find some similarities with the book of Genesis. You read chapter 40, might see some similarities between the book of Matthew, and you will. Chapter 66. Revelation. Good job! Attaboy! Yeah. Uh, yeah. 66. <laughs> and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their, what? shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be abhorring in all flesh. Uh, read Revelation 18, 19, and 20 sometime, and you'll see, man, that really lines up with everything that's going on here, and also in the rest of Isaiah 66. That one was free, has really no significance on the rest of the message, but do with that what you will. The point I'm bringing up with this verse is, sound familiar? It's what Christ just quoted, not once, not twice, but three times. Now, why that's significant? Well, for starters, you might have a Bible where he only read it in verse 48. Because most modern Bibles, like the NIV, the ESV, the CSB, NASB, the Revised Version, going all the way back, they take out verse 44 and they take out verse 46. Now, here's why that's significant. The fact that Jesus quoted this verse three times makes this verse the single most quoted verse that Jesus referenced going back to the Old Testament. It's been said that Jesus preached more on hell than he did heaven. This right here, you could probably say, was his favorite verse. He quoted it three times the most quoted verse of all the Old Testament by Jesus Christ himself was this one. Do you think he's trying to get a point across? Yeah. Now, in all four places, there's a very unique phrase that says, their worm dieth not. Their worm shall not die. What on earth could that possibly mean? Look at the third bullet point, and then we'll cover these, verse, these verses. Lost mankind winds up how he began. Just like his father, the devil, in a place that was made for a serpent. Follow along with me here. See, Job 25.6 says that man is a worm. The son of man, which is a worm. But going further... Genesis 3.14, after the fall of man, God looks at the serpent and he says to him, Lord God said unto the serpent. What's a serpent, by the way? Snake. 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 Looks kind of like a... Kind of. Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. That's interesting. Why did he say cattle? Well, as you study uh, 
Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, and Ezekiel 28, you'll find that cherub, one of the cherubs are, is an ox, and actually a cherub is described as looking like an oxen. It's a horned beast. It's a cloven-footed beast. And Ezekiel 28, Lucifer was the anointed cherub, but of a reptilian class. Hmm. Interesting. Study that one out later, especially when you get to Exodus where they made a golden calf and worshipped it. That's interesting. Have fun studying that this week. And above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go. Now, I don't believe, I actually think that personally, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. I think Lucifer or Satan here looks no different than a 33-year-old man, to be honest. And I think that what he's saying here is talking about future tense. On their belly you shall go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Well, since man is dust, Satan definitely consumes as a dragon the flesh of all mankind who follow his ways. Point being, there's going to be coming an end to Lucifer. There's going to be coming an end to the dragon. Matthew 25, 41 says, Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil, who is a serpent, who's going to go upon his belly. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. Keep hanging in there. But John 8, 44, Jesus is saying something to them where he says, Hey, you Pharisees, you religious sort, you who are trying to cover your own sins with your own fig leaves of self-righteousness, you, ye are of your father who? The devil. And the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Lost mankind with a deflated, no spirit inside of them is of his father, the devil. And in Revelation 20, 14, death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. So here's the thing. Here's what awaits you if you've not personally trusted Christ as your Savior and called upon him to save you. Here's what awaits your family members and friends, possibly, Possibly. If they don't have their sins covered and their soul isn't converted, could it be that when a man loses his body to be feasted upon by the worms at the first death, that at the second death, after the judgment, the great white throne judgment, when death and hell were cast in the lake of fire, could it be that man loses his soulish body and devolves into a worm like his father, the devil? Maybe not. But it is interesting that it's the one verse that Jesus quoted more than any other verse in the, old, in the entire Old Testament, the entire Bible at that point. And the fact that he kept saying, their worm, their worm, their worm dieth not. Everybody has a worm. Could it be that after the second death, how you lose your soul is you lose the eyes, the ears, the hands, the feet that mirrored your physical body? And in the lake of fire, you just become a worm? What's significant about in Mark 8, when, or Mark 9 rather, when Christ was preaching on that, 
outside of town, there was a trash dump that was on fire constantly because of just all the garbage that was there. And it had these little red maggots that people saw in the fire that just, they never died. They were just constantly consumed with the flames. A lot of people think that's what he's talking about. Do with that will you, what you will. If that's true, all of your family members and friends who don't know Christ, and if it's in here, if you're in here and you don't know Christ, that's what awaits. Do you see why soul winning marks a maturing disciple? Doing everything you can to invite your friends to hear gospel messages, doing everything you can to sit down with them over coffee and open up the scriptures and show them, maybe not the truths of this depth, but just show them the simple truths of Genesis 2 and 3 and then Romans and walking through the gospels and the scriptures with them to, as Jude puts it, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire because you had compassion on them. Don't know how much long we have. So one day everyone whose sins are not covered, they'll lose their own soul. However, good news now, please. Yes, sure. If a maturing disciple loves them, he can be used to cover their sins. 1 Peter 4.8 says, And above all these things have fervent charity, passionate fiery love that expects nothing in return for your lost brothers and sisters. For charity shall cover a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sins. What can be more loving than telling someone the truth and doing it in a loving fashion? That's what tonight is. Not going, well, yeah, maybe an opinion, maybe, backed up by some scripture, but still, even if the whole worm thing, and you don't buy into that, uh, Revelation 20:14 is definitely going to happen for all those whose souls are not converted. How? Well, subpoint. You can tell them how Christ speak. Well, oh, 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 jumping ahead. Turn over to John chapter 3. I want you guys to see this first. This is where it gets good. If it hasn't been already. John chapter 3, verse 14. I need a reader. AJ already read one. Jack. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Okay, Jesus is in the garden here with Nicodemus. He's witnessing to him, about ready to get to the most famous verse of all time in two verses. But before that, he tells him, hey, in Numbers 21, when the people of Israel were murmuring and they were complaining, they were whining about the food that God provided them and how he saved them, but that wasn't good enough. And so what did God do? He sent fiery serpents to bite them and to kill them. And what did Moses do? He starts pleading on behalf of the people. He starts going before God. God, what do we do? Please save us. So God tells him, all right, Moses, take yourself a pole and take one of the fiery serpents and put it on the pole. And he says here in John 3, 14, that 
as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up in similar fashion. What does he mean by that? Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. The very same curse that was enacted when Adam and Eve partook of that fruit. That deflated all of our football. Verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. How? For it is written. Quiet back there, please. Okay, it is written. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. As Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, a serpent on a pole, Christ became a curse when he was hung on a tree of wood on the cross. But not only that, turn back to your left to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 5. Reader for verse 21. Noah, go ahead. With some bravado, please. Some gusto. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that he might be made the righteousness of God in him. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. A minus, though. That was good. God hath made Jesus to be sin, to become sin, who knew no sin. Do you guys know what that means? This is one of my favorite verses of the Bible. I will probably throw it into every gospel presentation I do. You know what that means? Jesus Christ... Not only as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, not only did he become a curse, Jesus Christ became the living embodiment of sin for you. Think of the worst type of person that there possibly is on this planet. No, this is no joke. Seriously. Think of the worst possible person type of person on this planet filled with sin Jesus Christ who knew no sin became that type of person as he was suspended before heaven and earth on this cross on this pole for you man do we take salvation for granted one of the things I love about Psalm 22, it was written a thousand years before Jesus Christ was even born on this planet. It is one of the most stirring, prophetical psalms in all of the Bible. It has been said, and as you read it, you'll see why, that the book of Psalm, or Psalm 22, is the psalm that Christ had. It was the very thoughts that Christ had while he was on the cross paying the price for your sin. Even to the point where it starts off with him saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? David wrote that in 1000 BC. And yet that's what Christ said when he was on the cross. Later in Psalm 22, you'll see where David says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion didn't even exist as a form of punishment back then. God knew what he was doing. God is not bound by time or space. And not only that, 
Here's where it gets good. David wrote this, which again is Christ's thought on the cross. But I am a what? A worm and no man. A reproach of men and the spies of the people. Jesus Christ took that death. The vivid details we looked at 10 minutes ago. That's what he went through while he was suspended in air. God the Father's back turned upon him because his eyes are so holy he cannot behold sin. Rejected by man because they put him up here. He became a worm. He died that first and second death all. Not just for you and everything you've ever done. The sins of the whole world. And yet he cares about you and what you're going to do with him tonight. Not only that, Isaiah 53, one of the most beautiful prophetic chapters talking about the Messiah in 700 years before he came on the scene. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his what? Soul. An offering for sin. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied because he, Jesus, hath poured out his unto death. Don't want your family members and friends to be worms? Do you want to be a worm? Jesus Christ became one for you. How can you cover a multitude of sins for somebody? Back on your study sheet. You could tell them how Christ became a worm on the cross to pay for our sins. Those of you who got sticky notes earlier, be ready. The next point, when they receive Christ's offering by faith, the soul, your soul, is saved and their sins, or your sins, are covered. Matthew one twenty one. And she shall bring forth the son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 18.11 For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Romans 5, 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath in him. Hmm. 10, 9, and 10, and 13. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever, yeah, that's right. For whosoever yep. shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 1 Corinthians 1.21 For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, and pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 9.22 To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Man, tell me your heart doesn't bleed for that. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a faithful saying and worthy of all expectation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Titus 3.5 Not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. 
What a way to end the book. Soul saving. Soul winning. Winning souls. Getting souls to see their need to be saved. That's what marks a maturing disciple. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. We'll end here. In other words, to go back to our analogy, what Christ does is He inflates the football. See, it's the spirit that's that. It's the breath of life that's missing. This thing needs air to be inflated again. Christ resurrects it, regenerates it as Andy read in Titus 3.5. Look at me in Colossians 2. Can I get a reader for verses 11 to 13? You just read, Andrew. Megan, go ahead. I love it. He says that their soul becomes cut loose from the body and it's sealed by His Spirit. In other words, your body and your, your flesh and your soul, it's not together anymore. It's cut loose from it. So that way, if you sin in your body, your soul is not in danger of hellfire. Your soul is not going to be in danger of becoming a worm because of what Megan just read in Colossians 2. That God Himself did an operation that severed or cut your soul to separate it from your body, and then He put His Spirit in to seal or wrap it up. Ephesians 1.13, In whom ye also trusted, when? After ye heard the word of truth. You're hearing it tonight. When did that happen? Or what is that? The gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And in 4.30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Does anybody know what the heck this thing is? Oh, praise the Lord. You guys aren't that far removed. I figured with all the new modern fridges, you guys were like, no, my ice just comes straight from the refrigerator. Yeah, huh? Yeah. All right. So here's, here's an illustration, I think, that, that helps illustrate this, although I'm really hoping that it works because I just had Jamie do this. Jamie was the only person I thought of right away that still has these things. And so she made it like two hours ago, but there's still some water. You got the fancy ones? Oh, nice. Please don't. Oh, it's, it's starting to leak a little bit. Anywho, ice is in the tray. The ice is bound to the tray. What Christ did at the moment of salvation... Nope. Dang it. It's already melted. You took too long. Stop it. Imagine I just broke this. It's, it's loose. All right. Crack. I cracked it. The ice is in the tray, but it's loose. It's not stuck to the body of the tray anymore. It's loose. So that when the day of redemption comes, when Christ calls us home, he can take us out of our body soul and spirit together, and give us a new glorified body. Imagine how cooler that'd be if it was a little more frozen. You thirsty? You want these? Be mine? Okay. I'll, that's fair. That's actually, I think that's, that's, yeah, I appreciate it. That was very gracious of you. Thank you. 
So the soul becomes cut loose from the body and sealed by his spirit. And one day, second to last bullet point, they'll have a new glorious body like their heavenly father. I mean, it stands to make sense. If the lost mankind is going to have a body like unto their father, the devil, in John 8, 44, that we also would have a like similar body to our heavenly father. Philippians 3.21 talks about that we are going to be like unto his glorious body. And 1 John 3, 1 and 2 talks about, man, when we see him, we are going to be just like him. Hence the phrase, to convert a soul that James uses in 5.19. You know what convert means? It means to change form. To be one form but to then change into another substance. So what will it be? Will it be a worm? Or will it be a man? And just like that, you've made a follower of Christ. That's why soul winning is a mark of a maturing disciple. I wanted to do this series because, honestly whether you've been through one-on-one discipleship or not. You grew up in this church, and this is one of the reasons why I'm going to do a a follow-up series on discipleship here, as I've already mentioned before because of our golf board trip. But I'm afraid that because most of you either grew up in this church or grew up in church, the idea of discipleship has become just so familiar that we become so comfortable with these terms, we become so comfortable with it that we don't really look at what does Christ say that a disciple's life actually looks like? And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do the book of James. But to tie in the conclusion of the whole matter, like it says in Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep His commandments. That's the whole duty of man. That's how Ecclesiastes ends, and that's how we're ending tonight. The conclusion of the whole matter, fear God, keep His commandments. Now, those commandments worked differently at different times throughout history. The commandment now that God has for you is not to join a church. The commandment that God has for you now is not to do better, try harder. The commandment that God has for you now is to not get baptized, not take communion. The commandment that God has for you now Aside from fearing Him as we looked at tonight, and there's plenty of reason to fear Him, the commandment that God gives you is to get saved. Your souls need saved. Your soul needs converted. And you need your sins covered. And you can't do it with fig leaves. It can only be through the blood of Christ. And it only comes through receiving the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Will you bow your heads? Salvation came through Jesus' offering of His soul for your soul. That's what He did. I get it. It's Christmas break. I, As much as I wanted us to have this room filled out with a ton of guests, the first-timers, that is their first time hearing this, I believe that the people who are in here right now are the people that needed to hear this tonight. So I don't care if you've been going to church all your life or in the last couple of weeks. 
If this is the first time that you've ever seen the gospel outlined like this, ask yourself, have I ever personally received the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ? Have I ever personally called upon the offering of Jesus Christ as payment for my sins? Have I ever done that? With every head bowed, every eye closed, is there anybody here where you would be bold enough to raise your hand and say, yeah, you know what, I, I've, never, I've never called upon God to save me. I never realized my need for a Savior. Is anybody in here that would be brave enough to just raise their hand and say, you know what, yeah, I, I need saved. Anyone? Well, maybe God is stirring in your heart. Maybe not necessarily for salvation, but maybe for somebody who you know. You know that they don't know this you know that they're a deflated football and they've been trying hard all their life to try to inflate it and to pump themselves up with their good works. Maybe God is asking you right now to go and sit down and get coffee with them and maybe show them the things that you saw here tonight. Because the time is short. Can you say what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9? That you have become all things to all men, that you might by all means, by any means, save some. Can you honestly say that? Look your Savior in the eye in light of everything he did by becoming a worm for you. Can you then in turn look him back in the eye and say, I did everything I could to make sure everyone in my sphere of influence knew you and knew what you did for them. If not, ask God to make you bolder. Some of you guys on your prayer sheets, you, you've been putting things like, oh, I just pray that more people would come, more people come. And that's not to say that I don't believe you guys are trying. I do believe you guys are trying. I've heard stories. I know you're trying to reach out to people. But maybe God is telling you, you need to get bolder. Maybe God is telling you, you need to actually be a little bit more forthright. If that's the case, do something about that. Don't let that conviction just get cold and icy and melt away. Do something about that tonight. Father, I want to thank you very much for the time that we got in this, this truly thunderous book. You are so awesome and you're so good. And, uh, and I'll never look at this book the same way again. I just want to pray, Father, that uh, whatever it is you're speaking to each individual person to right now, whether it be about their soul being converted, their sins covered, or whether it be somebody that you've laid on their heart, I pray that they would follow through with their convictions. We love you, Lord. Pray for a good turnout this Saturday, that we would be a blessing to the senior men's ministry. They're taking time out of their day and out of their week to be with us. So, Lord, I pray that uh, the boys here would step up and that we would come out in full groves and just uh, really be open and just spend some time with them and get to know them more. Lord, we love you. I thank you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.